Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 177. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you'll be with us once again tonight as we embark on a journey into your words and prepare our ourselves to be um, more diligent um, ambassadors of your kingdom. We ask that you'll continue to um, equip us by your Holy Spirit so that we can supernaturally retain what we're about to learn and put it to application. We can put feet to our felt. Uh, feet to our faith. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We take it very seriously, and we ask that you'll be with those who couldn't make it tonight but wanted to. Thank you, Lord, for um, this particular time. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump right into our Matthew 9, 14 through 17 Judaism v. Christianity study. Take about 20 minutes and go through the material. Let's read the um, passage in question. We're going to look at another um, Christian author tonight as we're comparing and contrasting this um, section of Scripture, and we're examining my own commentary that I wrote on this particular passage. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. I've got it pulled up on your screen right now. Um, the uh, version I'm using is the ESV, and you can see uh, it's labeled a question about fasting, as if the whole section is about fasting. Um, starting at verse 14, uh, it reads, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then verse 17, neither is wine skin put into old wine skins, or I'm sorry, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. All right, so these are the words of our master. And Again, we've talked about this. Most of this is just face value, what we might call today common sense advice from someone of the day. And we could really just stop here and not draw any commentary out of it. But we know that when Yeshua, whenever Yeshua gave anecdotal um, advice or details or parables or uh, you know uh, veiled sayings and things like that, he was always trying to. Um, uh, kind of push his audience to understand the deeper meaning behind um, the de- uh, you know the words that he's giving to them. He wasn't just out there to tell jokes and entertain everyone. Um, he was on a mission from his father, and so like everything else, we've got to ex- we, we we can come to expect, and we should indeed be looking for the deeper meanings behind the things that he says. So um, let's jump into my commentary and um, take a look at some of the um, notes that I'm borrowing from my commentary. I wrote it. It's available on my website at takesatorah.com. There's right on the very top, there's a link. You'll, I'll talk about this later on as well. There's a link to the Matthew study. And we're now ready to begin looking at this example from Pastor John MacArthur. All right, let's pick up the study right where you can see my um, highlight or my cursors. 
what I say is that in my continuation of my examination of this passage from Matthew, I decided to check with one of my favorite Bible teachers, which is John MacArthur. And I can truthfully state, and I can say this without any reservation, and I say this in my commentary, um, that Pastor MacArthur is one of the finest expositors of God's Word that you will encounter anywhere. And I say that 100% uh, confidently and truthfully. Um, this guy's top-notch. I grew up listening to him when I was a DJ at um, in, in Colorado as an FM radio station, KWBI FM 91.1. And um, since then, I've just come to um, learn to appreciate um, the uh, contribution that he makes to the greater Christian community and the body of Messiah at large. Um, still going strong after all these years. He's getting up there in years, but um, as far as I can tell, he hasn't been involved in any scandals, or you know, he's not. He hasn't run away, run away with the, ch the church secretary or anything like that. So um, let's keep reading my commentary. So, uh, after the end of saying that, you know, he's one of the finest expotters anywhere, period, um, I say in my commentary, he's thorough, uh, he's honest with the text, um, he's not ashamed to exalt Jesus in his preaching, and these are really important, basic, foundational aspects of a preacher that you're going to need today. Um, so many preachers are, you know, they're they're entertaining, but they're not thorough. Um, you know, or they're they're um, they're thorough, but they're not honest with the text. Or um, you know, they're 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 out there to promote their own brand or their ministry, but they're not really exalting Jesus. They're not really exalting Yeshua. Uh, you know even if they're not as popular or something like that. But this guy, no, he's 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 hitting all the marks that are extremely important when it comes to growing yourself up uh, as a Christian, as a believer. And I go on to say, and he takes a serious stance against sin. Again, this is something that is um, unfortunately becoming rarer in Christian teaching, um, because teaching on sin isn't popular. Um, you're going to be more popular if you just tell the people what they want to hear and tell them that everything's going to be okay. You know, smile. God's got your back and, um, you know, all your best days are ahead of you and blah, 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 blah. But um, as far as I understand, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so Don, John MacArthur's not afraid of telling you like it is and confronting sin, exposing sin and uh, pushing you to uh, climb higher in your walk with Messiah. I go on to say, Pastor MacArthur is a model Bible teacher, and I can only pray that Hashem will allow me to mature to the stature of this great man of faith. I mean, I've been in ministry for 25 years or so, and um, my ministry isn't even near his uh, scope. Um, I'm not really comparing size uh, against each other. I mean, that's not really fair. God controls that. Um, but I'm just talking about um, the magnitude. I mean, he's got maturity, he's got um, stability, he's got uh, you know a lot of foundational aspects of his ministry that are all well developed and things like that. And I'm still growing. I'm I'm you know after 25 years, I'm still in a place where I've got a lot of work that I need to uh, to do with my ministry. So you know, continue to pray for me. I go so I go on to say, having said all of that, however, I'm not. I, I'm sorry. I'm actually at a loss. Uh, as to understand as to how he could come up with the interpretation of this passage, right, Matthew 9, 14, uh, the passage that we're looking at, um, 
how he could come up with the passage that I'm about to show you here. Uh, perhaps it just goes to show that none of us is perfect in our insights into God's Word, right? I mean, that goes without saying. No matter how good you are, no matter how proficient you are, no matter how much you apply yourself and study the Word of God, um, we are all uh, with with we we all bring personal bias and um, a little bit of error to the interpretation of the text. It just goes without saying. It's it's just uh, assumed. There's nothing you can do about it because we're still imperfect creatures. Of course, one day we will all be perfect, but that day hasn't come yet. I mean, that's not to say that we're not, that's not to say that we're all at the same levels of maturity. Far from it. Um, there are many people who, despite their age, are quite mature in their interpretation and exposition of the Word of God. And uh, Pastor Pastor uh, MacArthur happens to be a little older uh, in age, but he also happens to be extremely well-founded and grounded and, and uh, mature in his exposition. I go on to say, no one has arrived, right? We all have glasses of bias through which we view the Scriptures and... As a result, our interpretations are our interpretations are necessarily going to be a little off base at times. And how would we know that? Oftentimes, I've heard it said that um, you know, thirty percent of what I believe is actually faulty. But the problem is, I just don't know what thirty percent that is, right? So only you know, at any given time, there's only sixty percent that's really accurate. The other, the other thirty percent, I guess I'm not getting my math right. The other, uh, I seventy uh, percent is accurate, and the other thirty percent is 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 not quite accurate. But uh, the problem is, I don't know what you know what thirty percent is. I don't. In other words, I don't even know what I don't know at times. I I don't know where the error is. Um, I think it's right, you know, as far as I can tell. But we're all the same way. We're all the same way. We're all uh, just a little bit off base. But hopefully, we're not off base in the foundational aspects, right? The fundamentals, right? There are some pillars to the Christian faith that you really need to get right if you want the rest of the um, interpretation of the Bible to be um, even remotely accurate. And uh, thankfully, as I say in the rest of my comment here, thankfully for the most of the time, uh, Pastor MacArthur actually hits the nail on the head uh, in terms of explaining what the Bible means and demands of us. So he's got his foundational aspects in place, uh, you know, the essentials of our faith, you know, you know, the ones that you typically read about when you um, browse a um, ministry website and look through their um, statements of faith, what we believe, you know, and they've got like a, a quote from the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or, or uh, you know, some Westminster Confession of Faith or something that's reproduced on the website. And most of that, of course, due to Christianity's um, uh, homework that they've already done in, in most of the main areas, have already hashed out, you know, all those bugs, uh, to use kind of computer terminology. Um, they've already gotten rid of all those hiccups in, in their theology. At least that's what we would hope for, right? So, uh, I continue. When it comes to Pastor MacArthur's views on Torah submissiveness for believers and the ongoing value of Judaism as religion, what I've learned is to simply dismiss this side of Pastor John while continuing to uphold him in earnest prayer and high esteem. So he and I would differ when it comes to some of the, those issues when it comes to messianic versus um, mainstream Christian theology 
Christianity versus, say, Messianic Judaism or Torah observance. Um, Pastor John MacArthur is going to voice an opinion that's, uh, and we're going to see this here in a moment as we break into some of this. We won't finish all this tonight. His uh, this section here on John MacArthur is a little bit longer, so I don't I don't think I'll finish it in the 20 minutes I'm allotting for this uh, part. But you're going to find that he, if you uh, listen to his theology, if you follow his um, ministry and his teachings, that he's he's really kind of following the mainstream, popular Christian uh, evangelical theology on on those main central points. You know about um, you know. Who Jesus is, uh, the relevancy of the Bible, um, you know, understanding the identity of God and, and our, our relationship to Him. But when it comes to what we're talking about, uh, is the Torah still relevant for our lives? The parts that most Christians would um, identify as as uh, making you look like a Jewish person if you keep them, such as Sabbaths, kosher, dietary issues, keeping the festivals, wearing tzitzit, putting the zoos on your door, um, you know, um, engaging in um, uh, studies on the sacrifices and and the temple and 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 maybe even praying from a sador some of those things um you're going to find that pastor macarthur is going to take the position that all of those things were kind of um either for a different dispensation or they've just been simply been fulfilled by jesus uh the new testament teaches a higher and a better way you know law of christ versus law of moses all of those typical um uh, that typical rhetoric that you're used to hearing, what we might call the typical Christian narrative, um, Pastor MacArthur is going to fall in line with that. But uh, again, I say I highly recommend his preaching and commentaries to any and all alike. I mean, he's thorough. He's one of the few Bible preachers out there that has actually written a, a complete commentary on the complete word of god as in every verse has gone underneath his um interpretive pen and um provided he provided some insight i mean that's that's quite a feat that you don't do overnight i mean you can't even put that really together in a year and give it all of the due diligence i mean he's been kind of putting that together for several years so an, an entire com a bible on the entire commentary a commentary on the entire bible i'm sorry so that's pretty good that's a pretty good accomplishment you know i've got a commentary on the entire torah i do uh it's available on my website at takesatorah.com all five books of, the, of moses monday you know moses monday um genesis through deuteronomy uh, i've got a commentary now it's not on every single verse though that's the whole thing it's a lot of times it's just an overview Review. I skip a lot of sections. I just hit the highlights. But John MacArthur has commentary on every single verse of the Bible. I mean, wow. All right, let's continue. I go on to say, now let us examine his thoughts on this matter. Of course, we're talking about Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. This is a study on that particular passage, those those anecdotal details that Yeshua left for us, and what do Christian pastors think about that? Pastor MacArthur likes to develop his main points by employing what I like to call a, quote, well-developed running start, end quote. And therefore, I've included quite a bit more material than usual from this transcript of his sermon. We're going to look at a, 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 one of his sermons here that are available for free on his website, on his ministry site. I'll quote it here in a moment. Um, so what I did is I included a transcript of his sermon, and I did this so as to fairly represent the context. I don't want you to get lost in and, and just maybe the brevity of a quote that I might provide. I want you to be able to back up and see where he's coming from and typical if you've ever listened to any of his sermons um he likes to provide a lot of um uh 
what appear to be anecdotes leading into uh, main points of a sermon, a lot of like real-life story details, um, talking about real-life issues, and then things like that, getting really kind of personable with you, warm and, and cozy with his listeners uh, so that they can um, better relate to him rather than sounding just more like a, a university professor who's spitting out facts. All right, so I say... I've added a few italicized and bracketed comments of my own here and there uh, to break up the lengthy quote that we're going to be looking at. All right, so let's see what time it is. 16 minutes into the study so far, not counting my opening prayer. Uh, we've got time to go through. Let me see. Let me just scroll down in advance. We've got this paragraph. We've got this paragraph. And we've got this paragraph. And we've got this very long paragraph and then there's paragraph number five okay so it looks like five paragraphs for him i'm not going to make it through all of them let's just take a bite out of this um let's start with the first paragraph we'll probably get through maybe the first and second one and then we'll break it off tonight and leave the rest for a different week okay so this is pastor john MacArthur. this is taken from a sermon that is available for free at his website um and um as I'm not going to get through the whole thing, uh, I might jump down and tell you what his website ministry address URL is, okay? Here's what Pastor John MacArthur has to say. Keep in mind where he's commenting on the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 passage that I just read earlier. In the text before us, Pastor MacArthur says, we have a very clear defense of the singularity and purity of the unique gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is given by our Lord himself. The passage provides a clear and unambiguous statement of the exclusivity of the gospel and its incompatibility with Judaism in particular, right? Pay careful attention to what he's, what he's mentioning here. With Judaism in particular, and if it is incompatible with Judaism, which does have at least Old Testament connections, it is certainly incompatible with every religion that has no such Old Testament connections. So right away, he is letting us know that there's an aspect of what Yeshua was teaching in that day that was radically transformative. It's not to say, I think, that it was that Yeshua was trying to bring something that was so brand new that they had to toss out everything in order to accept what Jesus was teaching. I don't think that that's what was taking place, although some preachers would. Instead, um, I think that Judaism had reached the point where it had become so clouded in its, in its representation of God's truth, with all the traditions piled on top of traditions, piled on top of prohibitions and fences and man-made um, uh, opinions and et cetera, et cetera, that they'd gotten to the point where when Yeshua hit the scene, it was necessary to bring them, bring the people, not necessarily a brand new revelation from God, you know, some revolutionary word that they'd never thought of, but rather to um, return them back to the simplicity of God's word, stripped of its um, uh, what we might call almost calluses uh, that had build, been built up of man-made tradition, you know, error after error after error, or skewed after skewed after skewed perspective to where the people were no longer really hearing the pure milk of the word of God anymore. They were only hearing rabbis' opinions, 
quoting rabbis' opinions, quoting rabbis' opinions, you know, ad nauseum. So to that degree, I can kind of appreciate where, where Pastor MacArthur is trying to get us oriented, where he's trying to get us to see that Judaism was in need of a lot of repair, a lot of... Um, um, retooling, um, rebooting, if we can use kind of today's movie pop uh, referenced uh, uh, references or whatever, you know, we, we see movies rebooted right after a few years that kind of grow stale with the public and thus a, a, um, a producer will um, reboot the series and bring in all fresh actors, you know, uh, because all the older actors are getting long in the tooth, they're getting fat, um, and, the, you know, people don't want to see them on the big screen anymore. So what do they do? They reboot the series with the fresh new young actors, and that way it's, people get to see the whole thing start all over again. It's, it's not a it's not a prequel, it's a complete reboot, right? Um, is, you know, Judaism was in need of, of a reboot in that sense, but it wasn't necessarily, in my opinion, so that we could dispose of it and bring in a brand new religion known as Christianity. So that's kind of what's going on. Um, let's keep reading Pastor MacArthur. There are a lot of people today, he says, who would like to believe that Christians and Jews today have a lot in common, but those Jews who only adhere to Judaism in its current forms, even the form of Judaism that existed in the time of our Lord, and let me interject and say that Judaism in the time of of Yeshua's day wasn't necessarily monolithic, meaning there wasn't really one Judaism. I know we kind of like to think of that, that there's Judaism and there's Christianity, but if you stop and think from a common sense perspective, just like there isn't really one Christianity today, there are kind of um, forms of Christianity that we, we could almost say that there are Christianities plural today, uh, the, the various dominate denominations and interpretations that form the multiple Christianities um, so that there is a multiplicity of Christianity. Uh, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it has all of its uh, facets. It's, it's multifaceted religion. The same was true in, in Judaism, although probably not as much as, the, as, as Christianity is today, but it's not inaccurate to think of Judaism in the first century in terms of Judaism's plural. So, um, I, that would be my correction to Pastor, Pastor MacArthur's assessment here. But um, he goes on to say that in regards to the, let's just borrow his terminology, Judaism, um, they have no common religious ground and no common spiritual ground with true Christians. And again, this is quite a harsh assessment of of. It's harsher than I would treat Judaism's, the Judaism's of the first century, um, Pastor MacArthur's uh, stance on this. One almost gets the impression that he's he's has a, an axe to grind against Judaism at times when you listen to his commentaries. Um, he goes on to say, and this is in bold part, I, I, this, this is my own um, um, modification of his sermon, any form of Judaism without Jesus Christ is a false religion. And he continues by saying, it is empty bankrupt, damning, it might as well be Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or atheism, right? Speaking of any religion that doesn't have Jesus, it's, it, there's really nothing, um, beneficial about it. That's, he's a, that's a very harsh stance, um, 
I'm not ready to take that stance my, myself, um, even when it comes to some of those other religions that he mentions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or Atheism. Although I probably um, naturally be more harsh towards those other religions simply because they are not even remotely biblical, right? Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or Atheism, they aren't even compatible with the worldview that is presented in the Bible through the lens of historic Israel's Judaisms, right? Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Atheism, those are obviously competitive religions. But Pastor Mark MacArthur is going to lump those in with Judaism if Judaism is lacking Yeshua. And that's where I said I'm going to be a little more... Um, uh, I'm going to be a little more forgiving uh, to biblical Judaism. In fact, my own comments, I say I can agree in part with this bolded summary sentence. I can't remember if the bolded part there is John MacArthur or if I did that myself. I'll have to go back and look at his uh, commentary again, the source, uh, to see if I uh, copied the bold straight over. I think I added the bolded part. But in conclusion to tonight's study, we'll pick this up again next week, what we're beginning to see is that Pastor John MacArthur is going to begin to... Um, uh, paint a picture of the Judaism in Jesus' day that was seriously bankrupt to the point that Jesus had to bring not a, not a reboot of the old source material, but really just a brand new chapter. Uh, Judaism, you guys had your time. Um, you've run your course. Um, your fruit is rotten. Uh, it's time to be picked and plucked and squashed. Um, it's time to bring in some new fruit. And so we'll begin to look at this from Pastor John MacArthur's perspective. But that'll do it for Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to tetetor.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsitor Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles.
These live internet studies are brought to you week after week. Let's give you some brief logistics so you know what's going on. Um, this is episode number 177, uh, April 30th, 2022, on the USA uh, date. Um, we meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Daylight Time. There are two 30-minute seg- segments uh, to each hour-long study. The first 30-minute segment we just completed, the examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. There are Judaism and Christianity compatible with one another, part 9 we just uh, worked our way through. The next segment we're about to embark on is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper 3, who or what is the Holy Spirit? We're in part 109, and we'll start a new section where we're going to be looking at um, a, a, a section uh, where we're going to talk about um, um, Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism all over again. Kind of a recap, but uh, from a, from the Holy Spirit perspective. And then we'll watch a featured YouTube video a little bit later on in the study, uh, so I hope you stick around for that. It's taken from my short question, short answer live series entitled, Is the New Perspective on Paul Biblical? I think you'll like that particular video. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh via skype but if not um if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of, of, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat. Uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and i pray that the lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um so grateful i can't express my gratitude enough at how um how thankful i am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where god's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too i mean uh, god uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Take the next twenty or. 25 or 30 minutes to go through this new section. We just finished section 5 where we were talking about rabbinic thoughts on the Holy Spirit and we learned there that essentially rabbinic Judaism relevates the Holy Spirit to either one of two positions. Either the Holy Spirit is another name for God himself or the Holy Spirit 
is an attribute of God that can be bestowed upon people, but at the end of the day, it's just an impersonal force of God that emanates from God's fingertips whenever God wants to. Um, he can He can zap people with the Holy Spirit, as it were, um, but at the end of the day, it's really just God himself that we're talking about. So, when we turn now to this new section, who or what is the Holy Spirit, Unitarian thoughts versus classical Trinitarian thoughts, we're going to find that there are a lot of similarities between Rabbinic Judaism's view of the Holy Spirit and the Unitarian perspective. Now, we already looked at the Unitarian perspective when we examined uh, part one and part two, particularly really part two, on um, uh you know, Yeshua, is he God? Uh, who, who or what is he, right? Um, is he God? Is he, is, is he man? Uh, and we looked at the Unitarian perspective. But now let's turn our sights on the Unitarian model when it comes to the Holy Spirit. All right, and of course, you know I'm going to borrow notes from, from Dr. Dale Tuggy, right? He's our resident um, uh, Unitarian that we've been um, kind of highlighting. And for good measure, let me just start reading my notes and you'll see why. I go on to say, in paper two above, we made extensive references to Dr. Dale Tuggy, a leading Unitarian Christian philosopher and analytic theologian in today's logical discussions on God's quote-unquote supposed triune nature. All right, again, I'm not just picking on Dr. Tuggy for no reason. Um, I highlight him because if you're going to reject Trinity, you may as well do it right. Dr. Tuggy provides some of the most comprehensive, um, well-written, well-researched, uh, well-articulated um objections to Trinitarian theology out there. I mean, it's almost to the point that if I weren't Trinitarian, I would be a Unitarian, based solely on his representation of Unitarianism. He's that thorough and that convincing. Um, and he has a podcast that I'm going to even um, uh, recommend that you become familiar with. Am I trying to give him sheep? Am I trying to send people his way? Am I trying to say, hey, uh, jump ship, You know, leave Trinitarianism? Absolutely not. But you may as well be, be aware, as a Trinitarian believer, you may as well be aware of the competition out there. And boy, is it good. Boy, is it slick. Okay? So, I go on to say in my commentary, as an Orthodox with a small O, Trinitarian Christian myself, I actually highly recommend his podcast blog. You can see trinities.org if you're interested in, in taking a look. I'm absolutely subscribed uh, to his podcast. And it's it's here's why. Let me just interject for a, a bit. His um, approach to studying Trinitarianism versus Unitarianism is done from the perspective that he knows that Trinitarianism has its um, uh, truths uh, based on the Word of God, and if you're going to believe what you believe, you may as well believe what you believe based on having researched both sides of the argument. That's where I really appreciate Dr. Tuggy's um, perspective and his approach. He's not uninformed when it comes to Trinitarianism. He knows a lot about, in fact, if I remember correctly, he is a former Trinitarianism. He's a former Trinitarian turned Unitarian. All right, so uh, let's keep reading my notes here. Interestingly enough, I say in my own commentary, one of his podcast tags is, you ready for this? Do you love God enough to think about him? And it's it's actually a female voice that that opens up his podcast there. Um, you know, if you ever listen to it, one of his podcasts, that's one of the opening lines. I don't know if he's changed that since. Uh, I haven't listened to his podcasts in the last a few months. Um, 
But that was one of the longer-running ones. Do you love God enough to think about him? And considering that his main push is philosophy, analytic theology, and Christianity, you know, all together, then you can appreciate the um, um, kind of the, the pun or whatever behind thinking about God. All right. So he goes on to say, I mean, I go on to say, being the highly analytical, neurodivergent type of thinker that I personally am, I actually do love God enough to think about him, and thus, in direct response to Dr. Tuggy's, um, in my opinion, what I have to say, his scripturally and historically inaccurate Unitarian theology, I think God is absolutely a single being of complex unity. Yes, Dr. Tuggy, if you're listening to this podcast, or if you ever happen upon this YouTube video, I do love God enough to think about him. And... I think that God is absolutely more than the way you describe him. In fact, I know you're playing off of the verse in the Torah that says, love God with all your heart, soul, and might, but is restated in the New Testament as love God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. It adds the word mind when you're reading through some of the um, New Testament representations of that popular uh, Deuteronomy passage. Thus, we're introduced to this idea of God is someone that we should not only um, serve and love with our faculties, um, you know, with our members, you know, we, we should walk our faith out, but he's actually someone that is worthy of our thought life. We should think about God. Yeshua quoted, love God with all your mind. And so that's what Dr. Tuggy is kind of challenging us. He's saying, hey, let's think about God. Let's think about him. I do think about God. And I think God is a single being of complex unity. Now, I want to say in my um, my own uh, notes here, Dr. Tuggy wrote the Trinity article in the highly esteemed and well-respected Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. I know many of you out there who listen to my podcast and follow this YouTube channel series aren't really into philosophy. You're thinking that's all kind of philosophical mumbo-jumbo. Let me just read and study the Word of God. I don't need a lot of philosophy. Ah, I understand and I respect that. But have you considered that a lot of the early church fathers that were trying to um, articulate what they believed about the Bible without having verses to um, uh, lend them um, verbiage or, or terminology, they also approached the Bible from a well-respected philosophical point of view. The early Greek thinkers, some of them I know took things too far. Don't get me wrong. You can go too too far with philosophy. You can go off off, off the end there, um, being a student of psychology and philosophy myself. But what, I'm, what I've come to understand, and not everyone shares this opinion, so if you don't, I'm fine with that. If you disagree with me, leave me comments in, my, in the YouTube video below and tell me why you disagree. But philosophy does not have to be the enemy of theology. It, the Bible and philosophy can be good um, study buddies, uh, and they can learn from one another. Well, I'm sorry. Let me say that a different way. They can help. They can both help contribute to the biblical narrative and the biblical discussion. Obviously, the Bible is going to be the the final authority at the end of the day. But there are a lot of places in the Bible where we find gaps in um, of terminology, articulated um, phraseology, or details. It's like it's what I call information limitation. At times, we 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 know what what the Bible's implying or insinuating or or 
or pointing us or orienting us towards, but sometimes the words aren't always there. And other times it's just in your face and it tells you black and white. It's there. But be in those places where it, it isn't, everything isn't always spelled out, sometimes that's where philosophy steps in and tries to, to explain things and put these pieces together from the, uh, implied perspective uh, when we don't have everything spelled out. And so philosophy isn't all, is necessarily a bad tool. So I go on to say, we've actually cited uh, this reference before in paper two above. So allow me to once again make a lengthy quote under the section on the Holy Spirit. So what we did in section two is that was given over to studying Jesus, right? This is a three-part paper intentionally broken up into three parts since we're studying the Trinity, right? The nature of God, the triune God that we serve. Part one is all about God the Father. Part two is all about Jesus the Son. And now we're in the concluding part three on the Holy Spirit. So we pulled a lot of information from uh, Dr. Tuggy's work there when we were looking at the man, Jesus, the God, Jesus, etc., etc. So now let's uh, look at his section on the Holy Spirit. So let me just read through this. Um, I don't need to stop as much, I don't think. Um, the Holy Spirit as a mode of God. The Holy Spirit as a mode of God. Again, right away, Dr. Tuggy is calling the Holy Spirit a mode of God. Those of you who've been following my commentary know that the branch of Christianity known as modalism is actually defined as heretical. Modalism is the idea that God is one being, but yet presents himself as three um, characters in a play or uh, persons in a play, uh, people who wear different masks where there's one actor but three different masks, uh, three modes of expression, three um, uh, puppets that interact with us, but yet there's only one hand behind the puppet. So we can use different analogies, um, but the idea is that one God, three different aspects or modes or representations or or um, displays or or avatars or you know fill in the blank. Um, modern evangelical Christianity, for for the most part, rejects modalism as heretical. You know, one God with three masks is uh, a heresy that was dealt with very, very, very early on in, in Christianity right up there along with Arianism. Um, and so Dr. Tuggy holds to a form of Christianity that that strikes me as sometimes Arianistic, but sometimes modalistic. Um, oneness Pentecostals hold to a, a, a version of Christianity that is highly modalistic. Um, one God who wears three different names or something like that. So let's listen to what Dr. Tuggy has to say about this aspect of the Holy Spirit. This is Dr. Tuggy's quote as found in the Stanford Encyclopedia, his own entry. You ready? Here we go. Some ancient Christians, most 17th through 19th century Unitarians, present-day biblical Unitarians, and some modern subordinationists such as the Jehovah's Witnesses hold the Holy Spirit to be a mode of God, that is, God's power, presence, or action in the world. Again, this is Dr. Tuggy speaking. And remember, a lot of what he says is simply facts uh, that he's using to bolster his own argument. So, you know, the old saying is that everyone can have their own opinion, but no one can have their own facts. So to the degree that he quotes history and fact, I have to agree with that. But to, when we, when he starts stepping in and supplying his own interpretation of history, uh, that's where I tend to disagree. But so far, he's right on the money. Uh, and he recommends, see the supplementary document on Unitarianism. 
He goes on to say, not implying modalism about the Son, this position is harder to refute in an, on New Testament grounds, although mainstream theologians and some subordinationist Unitarians reject it as inconsistent with the New Testament language from which we should infer that the Holy Spirit is a self. And that's a quote from another um, philosopher by the name of Clark. And so basically right away what Dr. Tuckey is going to let us know is that if you just look at the biblical data and you compare um, the way the Bible presents God the Father, the way the Bible presents the, uh, God the Son, or the, the man, Jesus, you find a lot more um, explicit uh, verbiage and terminology that helps you come to some, some practical decisions on the identity of that aspect of these individuals, of who they are, and you know who is God, how is he put together, who is Jesus, how is he put together, etc. Et but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, um, uh, as Dr. Tuggy uh, just referenced here, um, there's a lot of uh, there's a, there's a lot of gaps in terminology. It's harder to put your finger on how best to describe the Holy Spirit uh, with with a with with a very foundational argument. Other than I mean, you've got verses here, you got verses there, but if you look at the kind of the, 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 the whole scope of the Bible, kind of back up and zoom out and look at it as a whole, the Holy Spirit is largely invisible. <laughs> um, kind of pun intended there, right? Spirit, invisible, right? Wind, breath, invisible. And so, Dr. Tuggy kind of just remarking on that aspect about the Holy Spirit. Um, God is uh, the one who's um, orchestrating all of history and 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 um, um, theology and the actions of mankind, and uh, he's the source. If we could use the Greek term "arche," he's he's the fountainhead from which everything springs. Jesus comes onto the scene as the Word made flesh, but at the same time, he's this eternal Word of God who existed with God from eternity, and yet now he's taking on human flesh and stepping into human history, and then suddenly he's there. We can see him, we can talk to him, we can listen to him, and we can touch him, we can watch him laugh, we can see him cry, um, you know, cut him and he'll bleed. And so there's a lot of uh, nitty-gritty details about this Son of God that we can observe. Unlike God, Jesus now represents the Father's will, but yet has his own will, right? Um, and and yet he yields to the Father, and and you know he's obedient, and and you know he works miracles, and walks on water, and turns water into wine, and things like that. And so all of that to say, in comparison to the Holy Spirit, we don't have a lot of uh, actionable. Um, uh, uh, ver paragraphs, books, and verses, and paragraphs that just tell us a lot about um, how we can best describe the Holy Spirit. Is it God's Spirit? Is it the Spirit of Jesus? Is he his own separate man, his own separate being, his own separate spirit? You know, um, what's going on? And is it all three? I'm not saying that's ambiguous. Don't 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 misunderstand me. The Bible is not ambiguous, but what it does do at times is it gives us equivocation. It gives us ambiguity. Um, I just said it's not ambiguous. Let me explain myself. It gives us information that could be interpreted two different ways. That's what I mean by ambiguous. 
it's not meant to be ambiguous, but it's meant to make us um, do more research. So I'm trying to backpedal, right? I'm walking back my comment that the Bible is not ambiguous, and yet at the same time, I do believe it has some it has some some um, uh, equivocation built into it, where the verse will say something, and yet. There's not enough detail for us to say, is it saying this or is it saying that? We have to look for the context, right? And sometimes the context is harder to find. So God's not trying to confuse us. That is definitely what I'm trying to um, state, right? Don't, don't, don't. I can see the people typing out the comments right now. Ariel said the Bible's ambiguous. What? No, it's not. It's quite plain and clear. Okay, yes, I agree. God is not the author of confusion. He's not trying to confuse us and befuddle us. But he does push us sometimes like Yeshua did to where he's giving us um um what how can we say it uh, um um quizzical statements uh you know Yeshua spoke in parables was he purposely trying to confuse people not really I don't think so he's just trying to get them to think beyond the surface level he's trying to push them into a deeper relationship with the God that they claim to serve he's trying to get people to help them understand where they fall uh, in the uh, scope, in the picture of of um, understanding and walking out God's words, um, so he used parables, and this allowed people to know where they were, where their place was. Right? Do, am I a part of the crowd of the understanding, or am I part of the crowd of those who are just walking around in darkness? Um, you know, he who has an ear, let him hear. Yeshua said. So that's what I mean by uh, equivocation and um, ambiguity and things like that. Bible's not um, purposely confusing. It's it's purposefully challenging though. Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. All right, let's keep uh, reading through our notes here. This is Dr. Tuggy's uh, uh, entry into the Stanford Encyclopedia on Philosophy. Let's keep reading. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Modalists about the Holy uh, modalists about the Spirit counter with other biblical language, which suggests that quote the Spirit of God or quote Holy Spirit refers to either God Himself, a mode of God, i.e., His power or an effect or of a mode of God, i.e., or e.g., supernatural human abilities such as healing. Okay, again, he's quoting some other authors. And this is just basic understanding. Or I mean, you'd have to agree with that statement there when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. He's either God or he's um, a mode of God, right? You know, the power of God, like Judaism talks about. Or he's an effect of God, right? The supernatural ability to, to do things that you couldn't do unless the Holy Spirit, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and things like that. So this is really um, where it becomes necessary for us to do our homework. We look at certain passages, and at times it appears that that the language that's that we're reading in the Bible is that the Spirit of God is simply God Himself. I mean, a good, healthy amount of the Old Testament really does lend itself to that understanding and perspective that the Spirit of God is simply God Himself or God's Spirit, just another name for. God as a spirit, the Holy Spirit, because God is holy and his spirit is holy. Therefore, we can call the spirit of God who is a spirit, the Holy Spirit. And yet we're just really talking about God himself. Okay. So a good amount of the Tanakh um, kind of uh, uses language that would give us that impression if that were all we had to work with. I'm going to say something more about that later on. Or we see that the Holy Spirit refers to a mode, right? His power, his his attributes, uh, you know, things like that. His his ability to create uh, without um, having to, to 
touch anything, right? Those spirit is active, you know, moving things around and things like that. So uh, that's just kind of what we're dealing with. And so again, some different uh, other authors that he quotes there. Uh, he goes on to say in this first quote, and I, I'm, I'm going to quote more from him as we go on, but his first quote ends by saying, this exegetical dispute is difficult as all natural languages allow persons to be described in mode terms, right? Um, he gives an example from the uh, former president, uh, Hillary Clinton. He says, Hillary is Bill's strength. Hillary is, of course, his wife, Hillary Clinton. So we have Hillary is Bill's strength. This is kind of mode terms or mode terminology. Um, you know, that that's kind of um, a stylistic way of talking about the relationship between Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary. Um, Hillary is Bill's strength. In what way? Well, um, is she like an emanation from him, the way the Spirit of God emanates from God? Well, not necessarily. I mean, they're two separate beings. So um, we have to allow for the, the, the language here uh, to be representative of the relationship between these two separate individuals. But with God, it's a little more complex. He goes on to say, and modes, right? Uh, let me, sorry, let me just read the whole quote. Um, uh, ex the exegetical dispute is difficult as all natural language allows persons to be described in mode terms and modes to be described in language which literally applies only to persons, right? Um, meaning, we, we often talk about God um, as if God could make choices the way humans make choices and have limitations uh, applied to himself uh, when we're talking about the, the modes that God could um, exist in. He gives this little example here at the end. It's kind of humorous. He says, God's wisdom told him not to create beer sap trees. Okay, uh, we know that the sap coming from trees is not composite. The composition of, of tree sap is not beer. But what if God, I mean, he could have created beer sap, right? If he did, wow, the whole world would be drunk all the time, right? Because you could just go outside and tap a tree and, and, and get drunk off of that. But God in his wisdom, or God's wisdom, told him not to create beer sap trees. Now, what are we saying? That, that his wisdom spoke to him? Who is this wisdom? Is it just a mode of God? Is it a separate being of God? Is it a power from God that's talking to him, telling him not to create? So we're talking about just the, 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 um, the way language strikes us. And again, we, in all fairness, what Dr. Dougie is simply reminding us of is the fact that the Bible is written in the language of men. God chose, and I'm closing with this, God chose to use mankind to express his truths, to pour his truths through the language of men and through the um, occurrences of history. God specifically chose the people of Israel to convey his truths to the rest of the world. And so, to the degree that a human ex can write and, and articulate and to pin thoughts and words and expressions and idioms and things like that, God allowed that to um, be, um, sorry, I didn't mean to hit, I, I guess I touched the screen there. <laughs> Give me a moment, I, was, I, I lost my place. There we go, that was. All right, what I was saying is, to the degree that God, that mankind has um, different um, ways of expressing himself, God allowed those expressions to be captured in the Bible as well. Um, 
I don't believe, and I'm closing with this, I don't believe that when mankind penned the words of God, that when men were um, moved to write the Bible, I don't believe it was just what we might call automatic writing. What I mean is, it wasn't like a dictation machine where God spoke and the machine simply repeated what God said. Like, I mean, you can do this with any basic computer or smartphone these days. You can you can open up a certain application like Google, Google Translate or something like that, Google Dictation, and you can start talking into the microphone and the computer or smartphone will begin reproducing whatever you say. And the point in my example here is the computer device has no choice but to reproduce how it interprets whatever you're saying. So if you say something that's unintelligible, it will spit some out, spit out maybe some gibberish, a bunch of letters that don't mean anything. But to the degree that it understands your accent and your articulation, your 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 vocalization, um, it will simply reproduce whatever you're saying. That's what I mean by automatic reproduction. It's a computer. It's simply programmed to reproduce the words you say. God spoke to humans, but they are not simple computers. God simply didn't just um, take over their brain. I believe instead it was a little bit more complex. He spoke through their personality, through their spirit, through their character, and allowed them to pin the words, but they were still um, active and conscious while these things were happening. To be sure, um, automatic writing and all that type of stuff is really in the category of kind of voodoo and witchcraft and, and shamanism and spiritism and things like that. And that's not really the way that God works. So uh, I hope you understand the, dif- the, uh, the difference there. So we'll continue looking at this next week. Uh, we'll pick up our quote again uh, from uh, uh, this idea of Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism as it deals with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at a, a website at biblicalunitarianism.com. By the way, Dr. Tuggy's quote, uh, let me just remind you again, click on 40, came from uh, uh, the Plato, uh, plato.stanford.edu forward slash entries forward slash trinity forward slash hashtag holspitmod, H-O-L-S-P-I-M-O-D, Holy Spirit mode. So but that'll do it for um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to um, wind the study down a bit and look at our liturgy for tonight. We are in the season of Passover. In season, Passover proper is kind of behind us. The week of Passover has come and gone. But we're still in the season of counting the Omer towards Pentecost. Remember, Passover and Pentecost are actually linked by the counting of the Omer, the counting of the sheaves, the 49 days, and then uh, culminating on the 50th day as we enter into Pentecost or Shavuot. And so because Passover and Pentecost are connected, I'm still going to pull some liturgy that reminds us of uh, the themes of Passover. And we read Exodus 13 verses 1 through 10 for the last two weeks. We read them in English, we read them in Hebrew. Now let's pick up our reading again with Exodus 13. I'm going to read the English tonight. I won't read the Hebrew, but eventually we'll read the Hebrew and we'll, we will entertain the first corinthians 5 passage 6 through 8 where paul admonishes us to keep the feast and he's talking about passover but first let's read exodus 13 we're just going to read 11 through i think it's 11 through um 11 through 16 so it's a short six verses there okay so let's just pick up our reading right here this is esv there we go. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, 
verse 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Verse 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? So the whole idea is, you'd have to read the, back, the rest of the content, the, uh, the content, the context, is the idea of coming out of Egypt, celebrating the Passover, and then um, offering up the firstborn of our animals because God slew the firstborn of Egypt. And that's what Moses is going to explain to them. The time is going to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? This memorial and this history, this retelling of this story. You shall say to him by a strong hand, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So the whole um, idea of keeping the memorial of Passover and coming into the land and then offering up these sacrifices and the firstborn of our animals, all of this is tied together. And we'll begin to entertain this discussion about sacrifices and their importance in God's economy. Of course, we know from Christian hindsight that sacrificial system pointed towards Yeshua's once and for all sacrifice on the cross. But we also know that God commanded Israel to institute the sacrifice as we get to the book of Leviticus, and there's a lot of details that just really go over our head as Christians. Why do we even have the sacrifices, and why might they return in the millennial time period, right? Those are some of the things we're going to be talking about during these next few weeks. Verse 15. Uh, Moses says, For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Right? You don't sacrifice your kids, but you do sacrifice the animals. And then uh, in verse 16, which is the final verse uh, in the Hebrew, that's where there's actually a, a paragraph break. Um, in verse 16, Moses says, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And that then he brings the uh, uh, commentary, as it were, kind of to a, a semi-conclusion at this perspective. And that's as far as we'll read in our liturgy for our section from the Tanakh. Let's turn to the um, book of 1 Corinthians, once again, chapter 5, and read those short three verses. Um, as you know, Paul admonishes us to keep the feast, and we talked about this in the past. Let's talk just a little bit more about this Passover feast and how um, uh, Paul wants us to um, be reminded not just of the historical aspect of Passover, but the spiritual aspect of who Yeshua is in our lives. In verse uh, 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The imagery drawn of leaven leavening the whole lump is taken from the Torah. The idea that leavening agent in dough is what causes dough to rise and allows to bake bread. But spiritually speaking, Paul picks up on this leavening agent idea and... Um, paints a spiritual picture of sin and gives us this spiritual lesson that if sin is allowed to go unchecked uh, uh, you know un, uh, un, uncontrolled you know if it allows if it's allowed to fester just like leavening agent it grows it swells it permeates the whole lump of dough or in this case 
we are that lump of dough. If we're not going to check sin in our lives, then it's going to grow. It's going to permeate other parts of our life that we didn't anticipate. And so it's going to leaven the whole lump. It's going to ruin the whole batch um, if you're trying to aim for an unleavened batch of dough. And so in your life, um, you're going to end up with more and more sin if you don't deal with it very, very early on when it's still small in its form. He goes on to say in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. He's not talking about the kitchen uh, practice here. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's the spiritual lesson here? We are that lump of dough. And if we don't deal with the sin in our lives, then it's going to grow and grow and grow until the batch is going to become ruined. Right, it's going to be. We're not going to have an unleavened lump anymore. Now, I don't think Paul's expecting perfection. Right, we're not going to be able to clean all of the sin out of our life. But that doesn't stop us from having to being commanded to keep it in check and to clean out what we know is there, what what is um, brought to our attention by the power of the Holy Spirit as we pray and surrender ourselves to God. This is the lesson for us. It's it's our own duty to continue to clean out the old leaven. We can't just sit back in say um, passive mode and expect that God's going to clean the leaven out of our lives without us doing anything about it. This is a command for us. This is an injunction. This is one of those places where the Bible is telling us to do something about it. We have to clean out the old leaven, right? That we may be new, a new lump. The good part is it's not going to only be us doing it. It is a partnership between our will and God's will. It is this synergistic work of us plus the power of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing and the washing of the water of the Word through us that allows us to clean out the old leaven. So it's not our own effort, it's not self-effort, but at the same time, it's not passivity. It's not us sitting back going, okay, God, here I am, clean me out. So it's a partnership between our will, our desire, our decision to clean out the lump, along with a reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God uh, cleansing us out. So that, that's how it works. And why should we do this? Because Yeshua himself was unleavened. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. He's our Passover lamb, and he's been sacrificed. And he died on the cross in order to empower us to be able to walk and live lives that are pleasing to God our Father, right? Right. He, we, in fact, can imitate him because his very spirit has come to live within us. Amen. Amen. The final posic, the final verse, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, right? Don't celebrate the festival, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There are two main principles, uh, principle um lessons that I see here. One is that Paul is telling us to celebrate the feast. He's not telling us to create a new feast. He's not telling us to bring alongside uh, a brand new Johnny-come-lately-never-before festival. He's actually kind of um, falling back on the Torah injunction of keeping the feast of Passover. Let's celebrate the festival. But we've got this renewed way of celebrating it. So this is the second principle that's built into this injunction. We are commanded to keep Passover, but not simply the way everybody else is keeping Passover. And when I say everybody else, I really mean all the Jews who don't believe in Jesus. They're keeping Passover, and so if Paul just said, let us therefore celebrate the feast, and then stopped, well then every Jew under the voice, under the sound of my voice could do that. But it takes surrendering to Yeshua and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
only by allowing your mind to be renewed over and over by the washing of the water of the word, by surrendering to the power of God, by confessing sin and dealing with it in your life. Only by doing that can you celebrate the festival in a renewed way. If you've not surrendered to Yeshua, if you're still living according to your old nature, if you've not confessed Jesus as Lord, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, then you can't celebrate the festival with um, uh, sincerity and in truth because you don't even know the author of truth. And so Paul is admonishing us as believers to take the festival, and I'm closing with this, to a new level, right? Yes, keep the feast, but remember the the example that Yeshua left for us. As we're keeping the, the historic Passover year after year, remember that the elements are taking on this renewed um, significance because we remember now that it's not just about being freed from Egypt. It's about being freed from our own personal sin and shame. It's about Yeshua's bloody sacrifice. It's about him going to the cross and offering up his body and blood so that we can become the unleavened bread, so that we can become that um, pure sacrifice to God, so that we can live for God as we turn away from sin. So that's the lesson in front of us. Two main lessons, again, two main aspects. Keep the feast. Don't just keep it spiritually, but do it really physically. Keep the Passover. And make sure you're dealing with sin in your life as you're surrendering to Yeshua, you're surrendering to the power of the Spirit, and walking into the feast in a, a, a radically different way than every other Jew out there who has not confessed Yeshua as Lord is doing. Right? That's, that's a very strong lesson. And I think um, the um, liturgy is not going to include Greek either tonight. Let's just uh, stop with uh, English and English. That'll be quite unusual. Usually it's Hebrew and Greek, but this time it'll just be English and English. How's that? Okay, can you guys live with that? All right, that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the video on the um, new perspective on Paul. We'll watch the video, and when the video's finished, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate Torah Ministries, 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight. Is the new perspective on Paul biblical? All right, let's look at my answer. Pauline literature uh, falls into two overall schools of thought. There's Lutheran Reformation Paul and New Perspective on Paul. And we're going to focus on New Perspective for the most part tonight. Here's my answer. The New Perspectives on Paul, we could put a plural there if we wanted to, are a more recent school of biblical thought that represents a break from Lutheran slash Reformation Paul or Old Paul in an effort to place Paul more sharply focused within the specific first century religious Jewish communities that existed among. To be sure, most Bible students would readily agree that circumcision, works of the law, and under the law are all topics of vital importance when studying Pauline literature. Wouldn't you agree? Particularly those topics as you're kind of navigating through Romans and Galatians. I personally think that it is theologically pertinent that we locate these central topics together within the pattern of religion in first century Israel by briefly examining the theological concepts that NPP has become famous for, namely this phrase covenantal nomism and justification. 
If, as I maintain, first century Israel did not define works of the law, i.e. Torah observance, as legalism, the way the church defines legalism in the popular Lutheran-slash-Reformation view of Paul, how then exactly did she conceptualize and define her law-keeping? What was her motive for remaining so devoted to the Torah and subsequently to the covenants? Did she believe her Torah observance granted her salvation? This is one of the important questions that we have to wrestle with. Or perhaps did she instead believe her Torah observance helped her to maintain a status of non-idolater, viz. justified existing covenant member, since her initial and ongoing salvation was believed to have been gained by belonging to the people group of Israel, and therefore such maintenance was necessary to stay saved. How did Israel interact with her Torah? Was it for becoming saved, or was it to maintenance salvation? The seminal work that introduced a term now known as covenantal gnomism, and indeed this new perspective to mainstream Christianity, was published in 1977 under the title Paul and Palestinian Judaism, written by E.P. Sanders, a Christian and New Testament scholar. A significant quote from Theopedia.com is going to explain this. E.P. Sanders is known for coining the term covenantal gnomism. This term is essential to the NPP view, as Sanders argues that this is the pattern of religion found in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. The term itself is used as shorthand, that is, a shortened term used to describe a larger idea. So, Sanders' definition is this. Briefly put, Covenantal nomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to his commandments while providing means of atonement for transgression. And that's quoted from uh, Sanders' book on page 75. This is important because it has huge implications for one's understanding of first century Judaism and thus for one's inter interpretation of how Paul interacted with it. If covenantal gnomism is true, then when Jews spoke of obeying, obeying commandments or when they required strict obedience of themselves and fellow Jews, it was because they were keeping the covenant was not out of legalism. Now, I know that statement is challenging. We're going to unpack that in my study tonight. I lifted all that from Theopedia.com. Indeed, for the last 30 or 40 years, ever since biblical scholars began noticing serious inconsistencies with the characterizations of rabbinic Judaism by Lutheran Paul proponents, as well as the anachronistic portrayal of Paul's supposed ambivalence in regards to Judaism and to relevance, this radical new perspective on Paul has been on the rise. Craig L. Blomberg, professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary in Colorado speaks of this new perspective as a new look at Paul's writings. Let's look at uh, Blomberg's quote here. Put simply, the last 25 years of Pauline scholarship has come to see the so-called new look on Paul become the reigning paradigm. Contrary to classic Reformation thought, Paul was not a scrupulous Jew increasingly frustrated with his inability to keep the law perfectly and thus merit God's favor. Indeed, early first century Palestinian Judaism was a religion of covenantal nomadism. What does he mean by that? He's going to explain himself here in a moment, so don't worry if these terms are new to you. What is covenantal nomism and things like that? We'll flesh all of that out. Jews understood they were already right with God by virtue of birth into the unique covenant God had made with his elect people Israel. The role of obedience to the law was one of staying saved, not getting saved, and was not too different from Paul's concept of faith working itself out through love per Galatians 5.6. 
The major difference between Paul and the Judaism of his day then for Sanders and the new look is the acceptance of Jesus as the promised Messiah, not a contrast between grace and works righteousness. And that entire quote was lifted from www.denverseminary.edu. There's an article there. For more on this topic of Lutheran Paul versus new perspective on Paul, I invite you to follow my What's on Paul's Mind YouTube channel playlist and pay special attention to the first six videos and lists, such as What's on Paul's Mind intro video, we've got the Christian view, Messianic view, and the new perspective on Paul view, parts one and two, Lutheran Paul versus new perspective on Paul, parts one and two, and then the Sanders works of the law and righteousness in Paul. And there's going to be a link here in this video uh, that you can click to access the plays where each video is, uh, averages about five minutes in length, so I you should be able to actually watch them back to back in one sitting if you wish. Right? What's on Paul's mind? Short clips from my lengthy Galatians study. All right, so what are our conclusions for this uh, study? So which view presents the more accurate view on Paul? Is it Luther's Paul or is it Paul within Judaism, the NPP new perspective on Paul? What's my opinion? I am of the belief that both views offer valuable insights into the historically accurate Paul, but the careful student of Scripture must always, always return to Scripture for his final authoritative answers. And that's just basically a no-brainer, right? Let the Bible be your final guide on these matters. However, since the Bible is not only inspired text but also a part of human history, we would do well to not so easily dismiss the latest earnest research into the field of Pauline studies simply because it is new. Here's something new and you think, oh, trying to disrupt the old, upset the apple cart. Don't think that way. In the end, if our goal is to get Paul right, it is important to apply historiographical rigor, including self-awareness of our own interpretive interests, which we ought to be willing to subordinate to outcomes that we might not actually prefer. Theological interest in Paul's voice should be conducted with respect for the cross-cultural nature of the historical discipline required for his later interpreters. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for um, this study. I thank you for your words. I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to make the words alive to us and to challenge us and to continue to um, um, give us an opportunity to grow in our faith and to put feet to our faith and to, to be challenged to turn away from sin. Because it's indeed vital that we live lives that are pleasing to you. If we intend on um, being a proper witness in this world, if we intend on being light and salt like you challenge us in Matthew chapter 5, we have to turn away from sin. We have to pursue Yeshua as if our very lives depend on it. Because indeed, they do. So help us, Lord, to have a continued appreciation for biblical study, for deep study. Um, help us to continue to um, love one another with messianic sympathy, forgiving one another, uh, even as Messiah forgave us and loves us. Uh, draw us close to you, strengthen us, and continue to protect us from this awful, evil pandemic. And we'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.